your head out of the clouds Get your feet back on the ground Get stuck into pop culture We'd stick around Hello there and welcome to Stick Around The podcast that lied to the Queen Brought to you by Pennywise, the pound shop with horrifically low prices. You're here for Stick Around, um, episode long. 140! Oh, wow, it's a nice round number. Um, I'm here with um, general experts, Clive Fisher. (laughs) Aye, aye. And general expert Michael Johnson. Big up. Uh, he missed the last one, but he's back now. Um, you were quite disappointed to miss two of those discussion topics, weren't you, Michael? Yeah, I could have. I could have talked at length about the new Tarantino film and that latest series of the hand, season of the Handmaid's Tale. But there you go. That's how how it crumbles, isn't it? Lesson to learn here: you snooze, you lose. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Uh, Indeed. I believe we've got um, quite a music-heavy podcast today. It should be quite good, actually. I'm, I'm looking forward to one bit in particular, hyping things up. Um, how was everyone, though? Uh, good. Yeah, I feel like I should follow that up with something. No, I'm, I'm pretty good. Yeah. Something <laughs> else to say, Al. Okay, yeah, good. Well, I'm pretty booked. Cool. I'm, I'm working, on, working, on, working on the album, because I'm cool. cool. Probably going to be out in about a month. Wow, That's been going wait. quite well. Uh, yeah, it's got loads of... Uh, I've got electric, so screams of Judas oh, from, from from the back. Oh. Um, there's no drums yet, though, so maybe they'll accept that. Uh, I don't know. Okay. I'm not sure how the traditional folk audience don't have electronic drums. Really rolls. Oh god! Well, that's what will be happening no, once the drums go. No one's go ready in. for that. <laughs> <laughs> Idle owl fans will be going mad. Yeah, <laughs> going to be kicking off. <laughs> We're going to have to handle it. Um, well, I had a gig last week. Went really well, actually. Uh, which also included an electric guitar. I didn't go. F- I was about to go full electric because my acoustic died, but um, uh, a guy managed to fix it, bring it back from the death. So I did manage to do half my set with an acoustic, half with a uh, electric. A bit in, in a way similar to you know not want to compa- compare myself to the greats, but similar <laughs> to the way Dylan did when he first got his electric out. Um, really, but uh, there wasn't any. Yeah, I didn't make that connection personally, but there you go. Um, did you not? No. But we've got the same hair, Al. Yeah. Dylan had better guns than you, I think. Um, Ooh, for, for, for readers who can't see, Clive is um, basically topless. Uh, readers on his, on his web- <laughs> Readers, <laughs> listeners even. Um, it's really Ma- hot in here, Al. <laughs> Michael Johnson, what's been happening with you? Uh, all sorts. Um, started playing a bit of golf. Oh, <laughs> truly reached middle age. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Long distance snooker for wankers. <laughs> <laughs> How's the handicap, uh, Michael? Uh, that doesn't exist yet. Uh, I've only been okay. on the driving range <laughs> at the minute. Um, oh, right, okay. Yeah. Um, I ran a 10k the other night. Uh, I've put um, 10 minutes onto my time over the summer by not doing much running, but I was still quite happy okay. with it. Okay. So. Cool. Sounds like a quite a sporty uh, sporting time for you, Michael, which is good. Yeah, went balling last night. Yeah. <laughs> the peak Imp- of all sports. Improving in increments, I would say, but I'm not that good at it. <laughs> so, yeah. But, I don't uh, go enough. 
<laughs> no, neither do I. But I've been a couple of times lately. Uh, but yeah, generally I'm proper sound. So. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, that's good. Do, you know, with um, golf, right? Let's have a bit of a golf discussion here. Oh yeah. Um, well, I say a discussion. I might just might just be waffling. So I've I've, I've had a previous stints of getting into golf for a bit. I've I've kind of given up on it now, but mainly because this this has happened about three times. I get into it and I'm like, yes, right. Get a book. One time I bought like Tiger Woods does golf. This is before he came out as being a a twat. Um, <laughs> you know, how to play golf by Tiger Woods. I thought, great. Yeah, he knows how to play. He'll be able to teach me. I didn't know. I didn't know he re- he'd release such a book. That's fascinating. Oh, it's um. I don't. To be fair, I don't know if he did it or if it's like how to play golf like Tiger Woods. I can't remember. Yeah. Okay. I might have fallen victim to the advertising. I'm not sure. Um. <laughs> So I was playing golf. I did a really good round, like when I first came back, and I was like, "Yeah, okay, wicked. I've still got it. Still, still got the skills." So I was like, right, "I'm going to improve." So I bought this book, um, learned all the like techniques, or tr- you know, got the theory of the techniques in my head because I didn't, I don't, you know, I'm not, I didn't have a freaking massive garden, so I can't really practice anyway, except on the course. Um, took it back to the course, and um, things just went to shit as usual. And then the more I thought about the fact that I was trying to get better and the fact I was doing shitter than last time I got shitter and shitter and it just cr- crumbled until by the end of the little 18th hole I just wanted to like burn the whole golf course to the ground <laughs> um yeah and then I stopped I think and that just generally is what happens as soon as I ta- start taking it seriously I fucking hate it well that's the thing I haven't played a round of it for 15 years uh, but it, it's it's a mental thing as much as anything, isn't it? It's a, it's really exhaust it's exhausting to play a full round of golf. Or what in, in my as I recall, and uh, to try and keep your focus for that long is uh, very challenging. It's fine if like things are going well. It's it's when things uh, you mess up one. I'm I'm very prone to beat myself up about things, and that's not good on the golf course. Um, no, exactly. So I guess that's so. Yeah, I don't think it's for me, but um, I do. I, I used to quite enjoy watching golf on the uh, on the old telly, which I know is I've never boring. But I've never really got away relaxing. with watching it. That's the thing. I've never really been able yeah. to get away with that. But mm. yeah, we'll see. I feel like we. I feel like it's anyway, becoming a golf podcast now. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, want that. Al, we, do you want to take, take this fucking? <laughs> yeah, look, we don't want to have yeah, shit back ex- on track. We don't want to have an even larger Tory listenership, so let's get away from it. <laughs> um, let's get away from golf and let's move on to, I believe, music. Clive Fisher, what have you got for us? Um, yeah, music. I've got tons of music. So I've started this new thing. I like to do things. I like to do lists. Um, and we love lists. Anal. Yeah, we love lists and I love coming up with stupid anal things to do. So um, this one was, I thought, I'll go through every uh, year. And I like Rate Your Music. We, uh, I think me and Michael are both fans of the website. Uh, we mention it a lot. Definitely. And I thought I would look at the top five albums from every year. Um, I thought I picked an arbitrary year. I picked 1965. thought I'll start in 1965 and just go all the way to the present day, listen to them all, and then just you know give, give my thoughts on them. So I thought I'll start this episode with 65. In theory, I'll do 66 next episode. I haven't decided whether to do them at random or... Go sequentially. At the minute, I'm going sequentially because I think it's a bit more interesting to see like the development and change over time. But um, anyway, so I'm going to start with 65. So first off, I'll give you the five, and then I'll just give you. I'm not going to go on and on because obviously this is. I don't want the whole pod to just be me talking about these five albums. Um, but I'll give a brief sort of summary of what I think and whether, uh, um, and whether I think they hold up. And I'm looking at them purely from a do I enjoy listening it, listening to it in this moment perspective. I'm not listening to it at a has it had a massive impact on the genre, all that kind of stuff, because I don't really know, to be honest, so I'll just be chatting shit. Um, so I'm just listening to it 
in a way that I know, which is do I enjoy it? What do I like about it? That kind of thing. Um, so the top five for 1965 were... Uh, post edit Clive here with the shitty laptop mic because I cannot be asked to plug the other one in. Um, by the top five here, I mean the top five as voted for by Rate Your Music, which is a you know a website where users give ratings to albums and then they get ranked. So it's the top five, not my top five, the top five as ranked on there. Cheers, bye. Back to the pod. Boop, boop, boop. Otis Redding, Otis Blue was in at number five. Bob Dylan bringing it all back home. In at number four, The Beatles, Rubber Soul, in at number three, Bob Dylan, Highway 61 Revisited, in at number two, and number one, John Coltrane with A Love Supreme. So I'm going to start, oh. as is, as is uh, customary, at number five, Otis Redding, Otis Blue, um, also sometimes called Otis Redding Sing Soul, or sometimes called Otis Blue, colon, Otis Redding Sing Soul. Um, make, make your mind up, you know. I know, fuck's <laughs> sake, Otis. <sighs> I mean, it wasn't a good start to this challenge, to be honest. Um, No, this this was a great start to the challenge. So I listened to this, absolutely fucking love it. Like it's, um, I think there's three originals on there. The first two originals, I think there's another one in there uh, later on. But it's generally covers of uh, pretty famous songs. I'll just uh, click on the link here and bring some up. Can't Get No Satisfaction is one off the top of my head. And uh, we've got My Girl, Shake, um, Down in the Valley. Lots of songs like that. Um, but he just completely owns the tunes. His singing is, I mean, I think you'd be hard-pressed to say there's a bit, ever been a better vocalist. Um, I've not listened to much of his running until I did this, and I just I was just blown away by it. It's about half an hour long, and the vocals are just so fucking good. They've got so much character. They're so much, they just feel so, like, in the moment, and it feels like if he sang these songs again, they'd probably sound different, but just as good. And he completely, like, with the production and the kind of horns going on, it changes a lot of the songs in a way that makes it feel like completely his own song. And I'm generally not really a fan of, you know, covers, as it, as it were, but uh, these are just so bloody good. Like, um, that, for example, Can't Get No Satisfaction has this kind of... Uh, it's just got an energy to it that I don't think the original has, and it's not that the original is lacking in energy in any way, but um, the Otis just absolutely smashes it. It's great. Um, and it's just endless kind of examples of that where it's just so groovy and soulful and yeah I mean you listen to this essentially to listen to Otis Otis's singing which is absolutely fabulous and it's absolutely become one of my like favorite albums to just put on because it's half an hour you can put it on at any moment it's going to be enjoyable it's a fun album to listen to and it's just got such like I say just such soul and as a big fan of soul um well this is probably my favorite soul record now to be honest it's brilliant um so Already, as soon as I started this channel, I was like, "Yes, winner! We've got. Uh, we're off to a great start." So, if you've not checked that out, definitely check it out. It's absolutely brilliant, and don't be put off by the fact it's just covers, uh, or mostly covers. Um, the two originals on there, actually. Let me just. I'm really shit at remembering uh, song names. This is something I've got. Uh, Old Man Trouble, for example, the first one, absolutely great track, and obviously Respect, uh, famously, which are both absolutely fantastic. Um, I'll move on now, because I've not got fucking ages, to Bob Dylan bringing it all back home. For those who've been listening to this podcast long enough, probably know that Bob Dylan is like my fucking... I mean, I've got two pictures of him on my wall. Uh, <laughs> he's essentially my... I, I fucking love Bob Dylan, basically. Um, so bringing it all back home, uh, I agree in that it's not the best of his 65 albums here, uh, but it is absolutely fantastic. It's Dylan starting to do his more... 
Uh, so it comes after another side to Bob Dylan, which was, I believe, released in 1964, um, which was his last sort of all-acoustic album, but went a lot more... A uh, lot less political. In fact, I don't think it was very political at all. It was uh, quite personal and much more um, abstract into going into his kind of what I what I deem like the phase of his lyricism, where he was essentially playing with words, and the words were just like a massive playground. And a lot of the time, he he might rhyme words with other words that I don't know. You just he's kind of the next line is almost for the sake of the rhyme in a really playful and imaginative way, not necessarily always in a way that you can read uh, endless meaning into it, which I think some people try to do. Um, <laughs> but that's what I fucking love about it. It conjures up images that I think no other artist does for me, just of just kind of just madness in a way. And uh, bringing it all back home was the start of that with some uh, electronic, with a, a band backing him, basically. And I think it's the, the band got better as time went on. This is, I think, them at their sort of... Um, it's not quite there yet. There's still some like subterranean homesick blues, absolutely brilliant. Um, I mean, this is easily a, you know one of my favourite albums. It's still bloody great, but I'm comparing it to um, what we'll what I'll mention later. My my all time favourite album, so which is a problem. Um, but there's yeah, fabulous lyrics all the way through. Obviously, really good. Um, the musicians are on form. There's not just quite quite the same energies uh, they got later on on uh, Highway 65. Uh, that's Highway 61, you donkey. Back to the pod. And um, blah, 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 blonde on blonde. Um, but there's just yeah, something about it. He's got the... And the, the thing I love about this album is uh, there's a tune on there called Bob Dylan, 115th Dream, which I think kind of encapsulates the whole fucking thing. Um, it's this... Just It starts with him uh, just on acoustic guitar, and I think everyone's supposed to have come in. Uh, and then he just, start, he just starts laughing his head off because everyone's forgotten to come in. And then, um, and this actually happened in the studio like this. Um, and then he just counts in again, and bam, everyone's in straight away. They play it perfectly to the end and just nail the whole thing. And it's a, this absolutely bizarre, uh, just ballad about him, just just random shit happening to him constantly. Uh, <laughs> and it's hilarious. And it's one of my favorite Dylan songs because it's uh, kind of encapsulates that idea of having uh, of just rhyming stuff for fun and just playing with words and seeing where the rhyme takes you. Like quite a lot of the time when I write poetry, I start with a, a line and then I'm thinking of something that's going to rhyme with it. And then it might end up going somewhere completely different that I didn't expect it to go. And in a way that the rhyme is kind of guiding your story in a weird way. And I think that's uh, a lot of the time what happens with Dylan in a more abstract way that works. He, he, he's got it on so many different levels that it's fucking impossible to... Uh, there's something about it when it hits you, you just... It, I don't know, I can't explain it, but his words are just hit me in a way that no other people's words do, and not in a way that, like, ooh, that's so deep, in a way that I'm just like, that's just fucking genius. <laughs> um, and that's all I'm going to say on that. So we're going to move to number three on the list, which I don't think we're on to another Dylan just yet. Oh, The Beatles' Rubber Soul, which uh, maybe controversially was my least favourite of this top five. Um, I am. I like the Beatles. I'm not massively into the Beatles, but possibly because I just haven't listened to all that much of them. I've since obviously listened to some later ones, which I'm enjoying a lot more. This one, it, I mean, it's good. Definitely, there's some good songs on there. It's just a bit. Uh, there's, the production's not very interesting. It's always obviously the same instruments, um, and uh, in the middle, it gets very, very samey. Like in in my opinion, and a bit um, just a bit uninspired and and they have such like clean voices which to me aren't that exciting so if if the 
if the actual music around it and the the melodies and things aren't all that exciting, then it doesn't really pull me in. Whereas I think later on in their career, they did the the melodies and the sort of production side of it much more interestingly, and that that's what pulled me in and the lyrics and stuff. Whereas here. We've got um, a, a sort of middle section of four or five songs, which I'm not all that into. Whereas um, Drive My Car, the opening track, great. Norwegian Wood, great. And it starts to dip a little bit. But um, yeah, so it's not it's not going to be my favourite Beatles album. It's my least favourite in this list. It's still very enjoyable. I still recommend giving it a listen. But I don't... Um, I would be surprised, for example, if I listened to another five, the, the next five on this 1965 list, that uh, I don't think this would end up in my top five, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, we'll move on there. And two left. So next one, Highway 61, Bob Dylan again. This is my um, favourite album of all time. So obviously I fucking love it. I'm not going to go on and on about it because I don't have time. But this is what, where I think... Um, I want to say the band's peaked, but then Blonde on Blonde is like basically probably my second favourite album of all time. So it's fucking hard to, uh, hard to really say. But they, so it's just... I think it's the perfect encapsulation because it's quite short. It's, I think, about 40 minutes long. Um, and every song is just absolutely bloody brilliant. The band is absolutely on form. It sounds like a... It just sounds like everyone's having a raucous, bloody good time. Um, and there's just so many things going on and everyone's working really well together and you can tell that he recorded it. He, he's very all... He was always all about and... Um, up until very uh, quite late into his career uh, about recording as much of the stuff live as possible and all this was just recorded live and um, quite often you know he'd just do two or three takes and then they'd go and listen they'd go and sit in the booth and uh, Dylan would listen to all three and be like I'll have that one Um, (laughs) you know these things were done quickly Um, and you can kind of tell that there's this kind of immediacy to it and and the thing that's amazing if you do listen to the outtakes and stuff like I do um some of the tracks sound the other two takes will just sound it's not that they did the exact same thing for two to three takes the other two takes sound completely different <laughs> it's just like basically he's given them a chord structure and gone like right you guys do what the fuck you want this is what i'm doing um and and it's just remarkable that they've come up with something that's like so immediate and so intense and like for example um i think one of the best descriptions of this is uh, the first, like a Rolling Stone. Um, there's that snare drum at the sound. And I think it's Bruce Springsteen. He said it was like someone blowing open the doorway to your mind uh, when it's like, <laughs> you just feel like you're in some sort of dream world and then you never really leave it until the album finishes. Um, and it's just the mix of his lyrics, his, like, in my opinion, like the way he delivers lyrics and his singing is, I don't think there's anyone, well, it's, you can't really argue that there's anyone like him, but I don't think there's anyone better than him. And I just think, it, yeah, that combined with the band being absolutely on fire is just, for me, creates the album that for me is the best thing that's ever been made. Um, and I can put it on whenever. If I feel a bit shit, I'll stick on Bob Dylan, Highway 65. I've done it again. Highway 61, you knob. Bing, bong, boom. And I'll feel great by the end of it because, <laughs> I don't know, it has an infectious brilliance to it that I just can't really explain. I remember when I first listened to it, I was on the way to my friend's house in London and it was night. And I just like, I just every, every time my next song came on, I was just like, fuck, okay. And it was, I think it was when I first like got Dylan to put it into quotation marks um, because it, I'd listened to him before, but I hadn't, and I liked it, but I hadn't fully like got it. Um, and I was just like, yes, this is, it, it, I couldn't, it kind of blew my mind how amazing each track was. 
And there's a good variety on there as well. There's some more like straightforward blues numbers, but they're just raised by this amazing, uh, like the, how the backing man plays and the way he delivers the vocals that he's done. And just the images that all these crazy lyrics that he comes up with uh, conjure up in my head. Um, I just love it. And every time I listen to it, uh, there's new images coming in because it's just so dense. Yeah. A remarkable album. And number one, John Coltrane, I Love Supreme. I'm not going to talk massively about this one because I don't... Um, I struggle to talk about jazz because I don't feel like I know enough about it. So it's kind of very surface level of like, do I enjoy it? And I do... This is definitely one of my... I've not listened to loads of jazz records, but this is definitely one of my favourite. I like the kind of... It creates a sort of... Obviously, um, Coltrane has this really virtuoso style with his saxophone. It's this obviously amazing and you can tell he's a really skilled saxophonist but um just the kind of what he creates with that and how he goes it's kind of all about like little flourishes rather than continually going crazy um but it's not it's very avant-garde in that it's not really sticking to any melody as such and i couldn't really pick out a melodic section of each song and be like oh that was that was really memorable and that's one that i remember but for me it's um, like just the kind of mood that the whole album has is really special um creates this kind of uh, it's just really bloody hard for me to even explain it, but it's one of those albums where you put it on and it puts me in a certain mood, um, like almost instantly. Um, and there's not many albums like that where it can kind of override whatever mood I'm in and put me into a different one. And I think that's why I think it's remarkable. And unfortunately, that's not very jazzy uh, technical lingo. But um, yeah, so I really love that as well. So obviously, I'd have to say, I'll say my favourite one each time. This time it's obviously going to have to be Highway 61, as it's my favourite album ever. But um, yeah, I'm really excited to see where, where things go. I'm already, I've done 66, thoroughly enjoyed it, so I'll do that one next time. Um, but yeah, I'm sure, Michael, you have something to say about these. He will. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> where do we start? I can say a thing or two about some of these, yeah. Um, I haven't heard the Otis Redding album. Uh, I've, heard the, okay. I've heard the other four. Um, Dylan's one of my favourites as well don't think I know all of his stuff as well as you Clive but certainly the 60s stuff and yeah Bring It All Back Home is a superb album, one of my favourite albums I think I know most of the lyrics um, to both of these albums uh, I can you know, go along with them as I'm listening to them I've heard them yeah. so many times um, Bring It All Back Home I heard a lot later than I heard Highway 61 revisited, but I know that when I first heard Highway 61, I think I was about 20, didn't particularly get it at that point, but uh, over the years it's clicked to the point where it's, you know, I think it's one of the most essential albums in my collection probably. Uh, unbelievably poetic, um, the music just has um, a magisterial quality to it as well, I think, that complements it perfectly. I think it's taken on a renewed relevance to an extent because it really reflects the cultural insanity of 60s America and I think you could mm -hmm. you could apply it in a contemporary context as well and that's the thing it's it's ripe for interpretation and uh sort of projecting whatever you whatever you want I think onto some of the uh the way D Dylan phrases certain things but they're both that I mean bring it all back home is sort of a transitionary album but it's uh, excellent yeah. for it uh it's got I mean, you've got Subterranean Homesick Blues, which is sometimes called the first ever uh, hip-hop song. Uh, you've got um, one of my personal favourite Dylan songs, It's Alright Ma, I'm Only Bleeding, which is probably one of his probably one of his most philosophical and contains possibly my favourite Dylan line, he not, busy being, uh, he not Busy Being Born Is Busy Dying. And then on, on Highway 6, I mean... I, I, I don't. I wouldn't really know where to start, but I mean, when you've, you've got tracks like... A, a track like Desolation Row, I mean, there, there are a few... 
you know more ambitious tracks written in rock in the history of rock and folk music i mean doing a 12 minute song just on your acoustic guitar is fucking yeah. <laughs> and keeping your attention throughout is it's remarkable <laughs> absolutely yeah um and the lyrics to that pretty crazy as well um mm. so yeah we could we could talk about just those two albums all day really but they're both i mean they're both absolutely biblical recordings within popular music i would say uh and you know they really they're really the, the the peak, along with Blonde on Blonde, of course, of the uh, the Dylan mythology. I would say, uh, I've got quite similar thoughts to you on uh, Rubber Soul Clive because I think it's the it's the first uh, album of the Beatles where, that I'm really interested in. I'm interested in their later stuff, their later period, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not quite at that level of studio experimentation and songwriting strength that the Revolvers and the Sgt Pepper's are. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, but it, it was. I've said before that it was the album that Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys was recorded in response to. Uh, so it's a pretty significant album. Uh, I do love some of the songs on there. Drive My Car is a definite highlight. I love that bass line. But it's it's the sound of a band really finding their uh, their footing there, which seems a bit strange for a band mm-hmm. that was already so successful. But um, in terms of a, a studio band who really revolutionised the album concept. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's. It's it doesn't blow me away, but it's uh, it's a decent album. And then mm-hmm. number one, that would be I mean John Coltrane. That would be a struggle to describe that album. I mean it's incredibly fiery, absolutely. I mean just so so evocative to listen to. Kind of makes me want to listen to it today later now. And it's quite hard to place in terms of genre within jazz. Uh, it's a lot less experimental than some of the stuff he recorded just after that, which is mine the free jazz. It's, I've just. I've listened to Ascension, obviously, which I'll talk about more. Right, later. yeah, yeah, that definitely goes a bit more experimental. Yeah, it's so <laughs> to far. the extent where it sounds like it's just four people in a room doing what the fuck they want, yeah. but somehow it works. <laughs> it's so far out there, yeah. Once you start dabbling in free jazz, you it's a totally different area. But um, whereas <laughs> I Love Supreme is an album you could you could give to someone casually who doesn't listen to much jazz, and they'd be able to get things out of it. I think it's a bit like mm-hmm. it's Coltrane's kind of blue, I guess. Um, yeah, in that sense, see that. Uh, but it's sort of, it's it's certainly not the uh, hard bop jazz that Coltrane played earlier in his uh, in his career. But it's not the free jazz either. It's somewhere in the middle, and some people see it as modal jazz, like Kind of Blue was. But I don't really see it as that either. It's sort of unique, I think. Uh, and there are very few more inspiring and phenomenally beautiful recordings in jazz history that I've heard. So um, amazingly. I don't have a problem with it being number one in that little list there. For me, it would probably be Highway 61 Revisited, but it's such that is such a great jazz album that I, I don't have any complaints mm-hmm. about that. I think even I've heard um, at least four of these, um, which shows quite an incredible list, really. Um, mm. How hard was it for you to order those, Clive? Uh, well, I, didn't re- I haven't really ordered them, to be honest, but... Uh... <laughs> But it was definitely hard to pick like uh, which ones I preferred because it's obviously a ridiculously strong year. Like I don't expect every year is going to be as this. Well, although when you pick the top five for a year, it's probably always going to be strong. Um, this is uh, seems particularly like a lot of these albums are sort of genre defining and uh, albums. Like you say, you've heard four, which means that they're pretty in- into the uh, into the zeitgeist, shall we say? But so yeah, it was dif- it's difficult to order them. Like for me, it's hard to ever put anything. Uh, it will probably go. Obviously, Highway 61, then 
I don't know if I'd put... I think bringing it all back home, I'd have to go for a Dylan 1-2, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> and then Rubbersol will be last, and then Otis Redding and uh, Coltrane will be scrapping it for the other slot. But I find it very hard to rank jazz, just because I don't feel like I know enough about it to rate... To kind of... I just find it hard to rate. It's the thing... You know, do you know what I mean? I, I really enjoy it, and but because I, I, I struggle to explain it with any depth, it for me is a struggle to then compare that to an album that's not jazz. <laughs> I don't know. Nice. Yeah, so I struggle with that. I was going to say that um, how it's, uh, sorry, bringing it all back home, also features a good example of when, uh, for me at least, when you when people ask... Um, What's a song that where people prefer the cover, but you prefer the original? And my classic, my classic example is always "Hurt" by uh, Nine Inch Nails, um, mm-hmm. which I prefer the original to Johnny Cash's cover, which most people seem to prefer. But also, I prefer the original "Mr. Tambourine Man." Uh, most people seem to prefer the birds. Yeah, song. that. Yeah. Well, I mean, people say, "Well, Dylan can't sing," but I've never listened to "Mr. Tambourine Man" and thought that was an issue. Do you know what I mean? Well, it's not. Ex- it's not that type of song. Yeah. It's yeah. The Mr. Tambourine Band recorded on this is absolutely brilliant, uh, and it's way better than like the birds is just straight down the middle, and it's fine, but it's yeah. uh, it loses all the excitement and energy, which is essentially what the fucking song's about. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I'd agree. It's the it's the better version, and yeah, some people say Dylan can't sing, but I think it's just a case of he's uh, not singing in a way that is stereotypically the way that you sing, um, and. But in my in my opinion, the way he sings brings across the stuff that he says a yeah. million times better than anyone else ever could. So yeah, yeah, it's such a passionate recording. I think that song. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. Right, we'll move from one music discussion possibly to another. Actually, um, <laughs> might not be hearing me for a while. Michael Johnson, what have you got for us? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just going to. I'm, we're going to have a big change of era here uh, musically. I'm just going to talk about, um, in short really, but about a couple of albums that I heard recently that I think made me reflect on um, on hip-hop quite a lot. And my point is, my point really is that at the start of this, even as, even as late as the start of this decade, I think people would have still said, you know, the big two cities for hip-hop internationally were New York City and Los Angeles. And I think that's pretty much been the case since the advent of the genre in the 1980s. But I think... I, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but for me, really the capital city of hip-hop um, over the last decade has, has become Atlanta. Uh, I think it's become a cultural epicentre of America in many senses, and the development of um, certain strains of hip-hop, especially trap music, uh, in the city have really solidified its position in, in that regard. But then I was thinking that... Um, Really, especially when I was listening to these two albums that I'm just going to talk about uh, quickly. Really, the the second city I think at this point is now is now London, which might surprise some people. But I think at the start of this decade, for me, British hip hop wasn't really. I didn't I personally. I didn't really take it seriously. Um, it had had its moments, but it was I think fairly moribund. Grime had disappeared from the map really a little bit, and I think we all know that in recent years that's completely altered. If you look at the charts at the moment, then you can see that straight away. Um, you see everything that Stormzy, for example, who is the commercial, um, certainly at the commercial forefront of British hip-hop, releases is right up there. Um, but there's also some incredible stuff going on artistically. Um, this year there's been some amazing hip-hop albums, uh, including Dave's Psychodrama, which I think is 
arguably the best British hip-hop album ever made. Uh, but the two albums I'm just going to talk about um quite different. Uh, the first one is 2017 album Common Sense by Jay Huss, uh, who is um, a London-based artist who is considered to have pioneered the subgenre of Afro-swing, also known as Afro-bashment, which is a a sort of blend of uh, dancehall and Afro-beats mixed in with a lot of influence from hip-hop, grime and trap, so a lot of um, music that's very popular currently uh, in a commercial sense. And I think this album, I I, I first became aware of uh, Jay Huss on the Dave album, which is... uh, partly why I mentioned it, but wasn't really familiar with him. Um, so came into this album quite blind, really. At 17 tracks as well, it looked like it worried me a little bit, because I always think that's a lot of tracks for a debut album. Um, and not so many guest features either, but it turns out any concern I had there was unwarranted, because I think this is uh, a smash album. It's uh, very consistent in terms of quality. Uh, a lot of the production is amazing. Mixing, as I said, mixing in quite a diverse range of styles. I love the sequencing of the album in the sense that um, you can't really you can't really replicate the thrill I think of listening to an album the, for the first time that hits you straight away, and when you, it finishes, you just want to hear it again. Um, when I was listening to this, I sort of lost track of where I was in terms of song numbers. When I got to the sixteenth, what turned out to be the sixteenth and penultimate track. It sounds very much like the sort of slowed down, reflective, the, the sort of the cliched style of track that you have as an album closer, I think. So I assumed that was going to be the end of the album. Then it hits you with Friendly, the last track, which for me is probably the best track on the uh, on the album. And I'd have to say, in, t- in terms of the fact that it's reflective of a, a subgenre that has been developed, that this artist is, in particular has developed so strongly, uh, I think it's probably one of the best tracks to come out of London in recent years. So... You know, when you when you're listening to an album for the first time like that, that's a really sort of thrilling experience, I think. Um, and yeah, I think this album has been a little bit overlooked because I'd not really heard much about it. Um, it did sell well when it came out in 2017. I think it reached a peak of number six on the charts. But I still think, you know, I've, having not really heard a lot about it, I'm quite. I think it's flawed under the radar a little bit. And I think this is going to be um, remembered pretty well. Uh, in hindsight, when people are looking back on the sort of things that were happening in uh, in the area of what can broadly be classified in this case of this album as British hip hop in the 2010s, so that's a great album. Um, and the other great album that I heard uh, for the first time on the same night actually was an album I'd been meaning to check out for a number of years but never had, and that's uh, Integrity by the British rapper Jamie from 2015. Uh, Jamie's the uh, brother of Skepta, who is, of course, um, one of the most acclaimed grime artists out there. Uh, Skepta has really done as much as anyone to put grime you know, back on the map. He's released two albums, including the Mercury uh, Prize-winning album Kanichiwa. Uh, in the time since Jamie last released this album, he hasn't released a new album since uh, Jamie. But I think this is arguably better than uh, either of the albums Skepta's released since then. Uh, in terms of production, it's classic grime stuff, really. Uh, a mixture of um, op- sort of stabbing orchestral styles and also hard hitting esca beat electronics. Um, when I heard the beat, the beat to the track uh, "Don't At Me" on this album, I nearly ascended. Quite frankly, um, <laughs> well, like like a, like a quaver. Yes, if you like, yeah. <laughs> 
Um, but uh, yeah, and Jamie is such an entertaining. Um, he's such an entertaining lyricist. I mean, he's he's quite singular in the sense that he does not lack confidence, which I think is quite important in grime. But he's quite unique in the sense that he's um, he's vegan, um, doesn't drink alcohol, or certainly didn't at the time of this album. Anyway, I'm not entirely sure um, about now. But it's it, it sort of makes for some quite interesting lyrics on the album. Um, I'm just trying to think of a couple of highlights. One of my favourites, I think, is um, if you don't like G-R-I-M-E, then you've got no taste like vegan cheese. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a pretty good one. Yeah, he's. I mean, to, and again, this is 16 tracks long, and to, I think to keep to keep that up over 16 tracks again is quite remarkable. Uh, these were both albums where, when I first glanced at the track list, I thought these are probably going to be too long. But I couldn't have been more wrong. And I think these things sometimes happen. Uh, you know, we end up, whether it's by design or accident, we end up listening to albums in clusters sometimes. And they give you a certain uh, message. And to me, listening to these two albums, it was just uh, it was just the message that right now uh, London is producing. I, th- I think we're better, more artistically interesting and commercially relevant hip-hop than the vast majority of US cities. That uh, that we would have considered more likely to do so in the past, and that's that's just what I wanted to mention. Cool. Um, I've not heard either of these, but they both sound interesting, so I'll have to check them out. Yeah, I'd recommend that. Big fan yeah. of the uh, Dave Psychodrama album that you've mentioned, though. Uh, big that. fan of his name, if nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting name for an artist, isn't it? But um, oh yeah, I mean we haven't talked about that on the podcast, have we? I don't believe, but. Uh, that's a sensational album, uh, incredible, and topically incredible, um, really engaging in terms of lyrical performance, guest appearances, music, so much great piano that he uh, performs himself across the album, and I think evocative of no less than when Kendrick Lamar first emerged, so you, I don't think you could be more excited about seeing where an artist goes with subsequent albums. And and really came out of nowhere for me either. Uh, I know you. It was you who suggested listening to it to me, Clive. Um, didn't know anything about Dave to be honest, but amazing album. Excellent. Indeed. Right. Uh, well, it's time for for a palate cleanser now. Uh, we've gone okay. through some serious music chat. Let's move into the film world. Um, no one's surprised to hear from me. Um, I'm going to be talking about um, biggest release of recent weeks. The sequel to the original 2017 film It, uh, inventively called It Chapter 2. Um, directed by Andy Muschietti, starring uh, Jessica Chastain, James McAvoy, Bill Hader, Isaiah Mustafa, Jay Ryan, James Ransom and Andy Bean. It's the sequel, or probably better than calling it the sequel, the second part of the It uh, adaptation. So it's originally a Stephen King book, basically around some kids who are taking on a supernatural kind of deity that takes the form of a psychotic clown called Pennywise. Um, before I go on any further, had either of you seen the orig- uh, the first Ape film? Yeah, I have, yeah. Yeah, so, so have I, yeah. I was a fan of it. Yes. Okay, so this, this one picks up exactly 27 years afterwards. So uh, it mentioned at the end, the end of the original Ape film that um, the this clown comes back every 27 years... Uh, to wreak havoc, and they they form a blood pact, which means that if it comes back, they agree that they'll all come back. Now, the majority of their characters, except for Mike, who is played in this by Azai Mustafa, um, have left Derry, 
And as they've left Derry, they seem to have forgotten about Pennywise and this seem to have forgotten about the events from 27 years previously. They've all moved on with their lives. So, for example, um, Bill Hader's character, who's originally played by Full Fit, Finn Wolfhard in the first one, uh, who's Richie Tozier, is now a stand-up comedian. Uh, James McAvoy's character, uh, Bill Denbra, is now a successful writer who has a problem with endings in a obviously almost biographical uh, twist by Stephen King. And uh, Jessica Chastain's character is in an abusive relationship with a new ab- abusive father figure. What a surprise. Um, anyway, um, they all come back to Derry to do do battle with Pennywise and chaos ensues. Um, now, the the original book, It, is actually split into two parts. So you have the kids part and then you have them coming back as adults. So it's hard for me to call this one a cash-in, but um, it's fairly disappointing, if I'm honest. The problem with this, more than anything, is it's more or less the same film as the original one. Um, they all get split up. They all have encounters with Pennywise where they have to basically face their worst fears. So, for example, um, Bill, played by James McAvoy, has to face the fact that um, he feels responsible for Pennywise killing his young brother. Bill Hader's character, Richie, faces the fact that um, he you know, he never felt loved, he felt bullied, etc., uh, etc. Et now, this works in the first one much better with the, with the child actors. Um, not particularly because they're better actors, necessarily, but just because... It just the context of it just works, you know, in a childhood sense. Uh, this one feels more like it's a retread with, albeit you know, more established actors, but with less payoff. Now I'd be lying if I said I didn't enjoy this because the sight of uh, Bill Skarsgård's um, dancing and malevolently as Pennywise <laughs> is probably one of the best horror performances in recent memory. Um, and the film is genuinely quite funny at times, although. Rather, I would say this, sometimes um, unnecessarily funny. Sometimes it kills the tension a little bit too much. I'm a firm believer that the, the darkest drama should have moments of comedy, uh, but not, you know, the timing has to be everything. I enjoy this, but it, and like I said, I can't call it a cash in because it already existed and the plan was always to make two films, but it, it doesn't feel quite right. I mean, the highlight is Bill Hader who's been cast as Richie, who is clearly the best cast, the adult version. Uh, James McAvoy continues to be uh, reliably 6 out of 10 in everything. Um, and J- Jessica Chastain doesn't appear to be particularly there. Um, I believe that the term would be phoning it in. But no, I, 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 I pretty much enjoyed this, but um, at the same time... It was disappointing. Um, probably one of the superior scenes in the film, actually, mild spoiler, is where, at the start of the film, a gay couple uh, get abused at the fairground by some kids who end up, well, basically beating one of the characters and throwing him to the river which in which Pennywise kills him. Now, this was based on a real-life murder uh, which happened in Stephen King's main hometown. And a lot of people have called it... Um, Potentially, you know, potentially too shocking, but um, that that part for me felt genuinely horrific, where it was equating real life uh, hyper violence with you know the you know the supernatural element of Pennywise. Overall, it was fairly disappointing. I don't think either of you've seen this, have you? 
No. No. Did you have any plans to, or if I just killed it for you? Well, it was, um, I'm, so, sorry, Clive. I'm I'm a bit. I was like a bit suspicious of the format. I don't know. The first one worked really well with uh, mm. child actors, which I'm not always a fan of. Um, and I don't know. This one just didn't seem. I don't know. For some reason, sometimes things just don't excite me, and I think this had fallen into that bracket for whatever reason. I thought the first one is like a classic horror story, but I, I wasn't sure about the direction of uh, of this. Well, th- this is the part of the same adaptation of the of the King novel. I it's... know, yeah, I know. I just feel I feel a bit strange about it. I don't know. Well, it undoubtedly, just doesn't work as well. I mean, um, what did you think of the first one, Clive? Um, yeah, I liked the first one. Yeah, I remember who I can't remember who I watched it with, but they hated it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I liked it, um, but I wasn't. This was the kind of thing where if it had been well reviewed and people really liked it, I'd have gone to watch it. But otherwise, I'm not all that bothered because I'm not particularly invested in the story. I just, I don't know. I like the first one because of I think it just visually, I thought it was pretty interesting and stuff, and the way it did stuff. So yeah, similar to Michael, I'm not wasn't all that excited about it. Would have got more excited had I heard loads of positive things, but I haven't. So <laughs> this was. Well, um, I- Go on, Alex. No, no, no. You carry on, Michael. No, I was just going to say this was uh, this was savaged actually in the New Statesman. I was reading the review yesterday by Ryan Gilby, which surprised me actually because he doesn't typically uh, savage that many films. Although it was quite an entertaining review, I just wanted to mention a line. I'm paraphrasing, uh, but it made me laugh out loud. Um, is it correct? I think at the start of the film, "Come home" is daubed on walls around the town. Or is that right? Uh, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And he'd written, uh, which which either means um, something is up, or there's a huge fan of the Manchester band James on the loose. <laughs> <laughs> could, could be either. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, there is obviously Stephen King is absolutely huge in Hollywood and TV at the minute. Um, Seems that he can't write a book that's not going to be adapted, and he is probably the most reliable author you can adapt, in the sense that all of his works are largely cinematic. And I think I've mentioned before that I think he's be- his work is better adapted than it is on the page. But um, yeah, it, it's a strange one. I think it's because he just kind of cuts to this heart of horror in Americana. Um, it's always in, yeah. you know, it, it's always just scary enough without being too surreal that it would put off a mainstream audience um so for example there are elements of horror film you know in horror films where you genuinely feel almost physically sick usually through surrealism so for example see there's a scene in particular uh in Mulholland Drive that's still the scariest thing I've ever seen on on film um no Stephen King's work is not horrific for that for those reasons Stephen King's work is horrific because it cuts into this idea of the American dream uh, almost very comfortably. He's a, he's like the, the, the Steven Spielberg of writing. Actually, has he ever adapted a Stephen King book? Interesting. Don't think so. But yeah, um, I, I can't think of another writer who has been adapted as often and as successfully in general. This one's, like I said, fairly disappointing. He, he actually has a cameo in this Stephen King um, as a junk shop owner who sells his own kind of substitute character bill his bike back which felt again quite unnecessary but um yeah oddly oddly disappointed by this i thought the casting was good same director back you know not a cash in it was based on the original book just didn't quite work um i think you i think the same review that you mentioned pointed out that the the 
kind of the the chemistry between the characters didn't quite work, and I can see that. Yeah. But I think more than anything, it's the fact that they're really working with a script where, aside from the initial um, scenes where they're all being gathered together and they've forgotten about the events, they're going back to largely being the same characters, and you can't really be the same character when you are 37. It just doesn't really work. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, another another in the Stephen King back catalogue. I noted a trailer, actually, while going to see this for Doctor Sleep, which is Stephen King's sequel to The, to the Shining which he famously hated the film adaptation of, despite the fact it's probably the best reviewed. He seems like he's really building the Stephen King trust fund up at the minute, but um, <laughs> probably not going to see that one. I didn't know he hated The Shining. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, he despises it. Um, he doesn't feel it was like his novel at all, which Stanley Kubrick would probably agree with. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's obviously that largely the, it's the same setting, the same things happen, but he takes it in a very much a different way. Yeah. Um, what before we move on? What is your favourite adapted Stephen King film? Probably that. Yeah, um, I mean, obviously the one that comes up the most is probably the Shawshank Redemption. I think for me, it would be Stand by Me. What about you, Clive? Um, I did not know Stand by Me was a Stephen King adaption. So yes, that. <laughs> I love that film. <laughs> so I'm glad. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah. I was just going to say Kubrick is the master for me, so I should I should declare that. Yeah, well, Stanley Kubrick is my favourite director of all time as well, but yeah, I mean, I don't want to be too down on this, it's not an awful film, but it was it was reasonably disappointing. Let's move on anyway, maybe to more positive notes. Uh, Clive, mm. what else have you got for us? Uh, well, I'm going to be quick here, because I'm conscious of the fact that I spent the longest talking about my first section. Um, this, I'm going to talk about, quickly, Hale County This Morning, This Evening, which is a uh, film that came out earlier this year. It's an English, English, English bloody hell, language documentary film uh, about the lives of black people in Hale County, Alabama. Um, it's directed, pretty much everything done by, directed story, all that jazz, by Ramel Ross. And it's his first um, non-fiction feature, I believe, according to Wikipedia here. So let's hope Wikipedia's right. It's a weird one, this. Um, and I'm, like I said, I'm just going to talk about it briefly. But it's it's not really a story at all. Like it says it, when I read the blurb and stuff, it says it follows the, the lives of uh, two characters, which it does just... Just all too, it's obviously it's non-fiction. <laughs> it does to some extent. Um, Ramel Ross, as far as I'm aware, is a basketball coach and photography student, and kind of just filmed this stuff um, over the last five years as he was uh, doing that course and doing his basketball coaching. So it's a lot of essentially, it's it's kind of visual poetry. Essentially, it's like it doesn't really have a clear narrative. Um, the one scene doesn't really link to an, an, another in any way. Quite often there is. Uh, not any talking whatsoever. It'll just be a shot of, okay, there's some smoke going up in the air and like the sun shining through it. And it'll be lots of these kind of stunning shots of things um, that Ramel's obviously seen and thought that looks cool and then filmed it. And it's kind of, I don't know, it's, it's, it's poetic in that way. It's quite, um, I found it really good to watch because he looks at the world in a similar way to what I do um, in that he... Often, though, he'll be, like, at a place where the main focus is whatever. Um, there's some kids playing basketball, and you could be focusing on that, but actually he turns the camera on the shadows or something like that, and he looks at that because there's, there's a kind of something fascinating about that and looking at it uh, from that perspective, and that's the kind of thing that, I don't know, I, I find interesting is rather than looking at the thing that's obvious to look at, look at some of the other stuff. Um, and he, he does that a lot, and it's uh, really, 
really poetic and visual, and it's um, I, I just enjoyed it as fi- an hour and fifty minutes of uh, poetic sort of visual, really interesting stuff, and sort of in in a way putting me into that community a little bit as well, uh, which is I think what the aim, what the film aims to do. And there are some sort of dramatic events that happen in the film, some some very sad events, but um, largely it's just a sort of pastiche of these kind of things stuck together of uh, like one scene for example it's just uh, blokes carrying a sofa up some stairs uh, <laughs> but there's, there's something about what's happening in the background and everything makes it like kind of fascinating to look at I don't know it's, it's a very hard film to explain but it's one that I'd recommend people people who are kind of you know willing to experiment a bit uh, when it comes to cinema should should check out and if it uh, sounds appealing go for it I do think it didn't I didn't love it as a as much as some people have, just because I think it's, um, I think some of the ideas flew- went over my head a little bit. Like I think it's, it's been described as being kind of a, as almost like five musical movements. Like it has these questions at the bottom of the screen. For example, uh, there's a few here. What is the orbit of our dreaming? How do we not frame someone? And then it will. Um, carry on with some images after that before the next message comes up at the bottom i didn't really see the link between the messages and what was happening on the screen probably just because i'm a bit dim and it went over my head or i wasn't thinking about it enough i don't know but um so i didn't i didn't pick i didn't get that from it which is maybe what uh why i haven't absolutely loved it like everyone else but i did i loved i did love the film um like for me it's a, it's definitely sort of in between the eight or nine out of ten range if i was going to have to give it a rating to give you an idea of how much i enjoyed it so i did really really like it um which is remarkable because of the fact it's it is just so bloody different i've never really seen anything like this and i hope there's more of stuff like this and i hope this kind of i, th- I just like this idea of filming stuff that without really any narr- necessary narrative need um i don't think you need to have a narrative necessarily to put someone into a community and into someone's life like just kind of the day-to-day mundane shit filming that there's there is a beauty in that um and one of the things that i always say um like i live in an area of sheffield there's pretty there's there's a lot of rubbish around um and i get called a fucking pretentious twat but to me it's um i don't know there's something interesting about the fact that there is loads of rubbish around um i don't know in a way that's more it's just different to it being super fucking clean so and the film kind of approaches things with a similar sort of perspective i guess i don't know i just thought it was really interesting and i'm kind of waffling but it's hard film not to waffle about it's a bit like jazz uh what what do you talk about but yeah people should check it out it's really really good and very visionary for definite i know um the guardian guy peter bradshaw is it i think he gave this five stars he loved it okay there's a bit of a backup to me. He's a good, <laughs> he's a good, he's a good reviewer. I can't say I've really heard of this one too much, to be honest with you. Uh, my, I don't really have any thoughts on this. Oddly, I normally would. Uh, Cl- uh, Michael, any thoughts on this at all? The only thought I'm having is that if there's one word that people have, uh, it's the only thing people have to say to make me intrigued by a film. It's visionary, and he, he said it. So, mm. bam! I, just at the end there, I slipped it in. Thought this will get him. <laughs> Hooked me. Uh, it could be someone with terrible ta- that I know has terrible taste in films, and if they said it, I'd want to see the film they were talking about. Although, in my experience, people with terrible tastes in film taste don't in films don't visionary. say the word visionary. So. <laughs> no, this is well good, won't it? <laughs> yeah, for example. <laughs> right, excellent. Um, we're back with Michael Johnson now. Michael, what have you got for a second of all? Yeah, well, I thought I'd just talk about the fact that. Um, I've got a new favourite band, so okay. I, thought, I thought I'd talk about that briefly. I mean, for about, for, I'd say for pretty much since um, 
think when I first got into them, Radiohead became my favourite band in about 2006. And then uh, I've talked about Tool a lot. Um, and I think I got in, I first got into them in about 2009. And then I think for the last 10 years, it was basically a sort of toss-up which of those I would describe as my favourite band or arguably my favourite band if someone asked me that. But as time went on, I sort of, I was thinking, you know, especially with Till not releasing any music, I was thinking, well, it's quite surprising that I haven't felt confident enough to elevate a band into that position in re- replacement of either of them. A more contemporary mm-hmm. band, really, considering how much music I listen to. And there's been some fantastic bands this decade, um, like Sleaford Mods, Death Grips, um, Swans as well, who are releasing a new album soon. But I think, you know, to consider a band your favourite, there has to be something more special than just releasing excellent albums, which is brilliant, obviously. But, you know, there has to be a certain connection that you get with them. And that's what's happened uh, to, me, to me in the last year uh, with a certain band that I now feel happy enough to describe them as such. Uh, and I've never talked about them on the podcast, I don't believe, so I thought I would just do that uh, quickly. Alex already knows who it is, so <laughs> I've told him this. And that is, it is the 1975. Oh, okay, um, cool. I remember last uh, in in the in that weird week between Christmas and New Year that we have every year. Um, I that was when I think after Pitchfork named it the best song of last year. That was when I first watched the video uh, for "Love It If We Made It." I didn't. I don't think I watched or listened to anything else for days after that. I mean that song, especially combined with the video, for me is absolutely one of the most essential tracks of the 2010s, and. It will it will go down as the band's anthem, I'm sure. Although when you ask people about uh, what songs they know, they don't tend to mention it. Uh, when you ask people about when you mention the 1975 to people, which I think is quite strange, mm-hmm. I think it is it is their defining song. But I think it's really it's a good example of how the band they've been in the headlines a lot really for positions that they've taken up recently. But I think uh, for, they clearly share my worldview, which is obviously creating a certain bias. Um, in terms of my fandom of them, but there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and they're, they're, I would say they're on the right side of history through my eyes. Uh, we've got the... Uh, all their albums start with an, um, a self-titled track, uh, which usually takes... It's, it's usually a bite-sized track. They've already released the one for their uh, their upcoming album, Notes on a Conditional Form, which is going to come out in February. This was in the headlines because it was a, it was a, a near five-minute speech by the environmental activist Greta Thunberg, Sort of imploring people to act now to save the environment, as she's been doing for the last uh, couple of years. Um, so they're in the headlines for that. They're in the headlines because some uh, some Tory MP whose name I can't remember had uh, accused <laughs> them of hypocrisy for flying to their gigs. Um, oh yeah, yeah, of course. Classic. You can't Classic, have an environmental yeah. opinion unless you live in a shed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's just just the yeah. most rank sort of opinion. <laughs> Basically, but um, and then they were also where were they? I believe it was Dubai they were performing where um, Matty Healy protested against um, laws on homosexuality there by kissing someone. Can't remember who exactly, uh, and and said he didn't expect to be invited back. But um, you know, it's it's just these are just the politics. But uh, you know, I should talk about the music, which is um, you know for me. I mean, the band has a certain sound and aesthetic. I was watching, I think it's about a 12-minute video on YouTube uh, recently of Matty Healy, who I didn't mention is the band's frontman, but um, is uh, breaking down the aesthetic history of the 1975, um, how he's controlled their artistic direction. Uh, Really interesting stuff, and I think he's a guy who, 
he's so interesting to listen to. He has so much going on in his head at all times. I think, uh, and that that really, I think, I think that's a key ingredient to what the band does. Uh, but m- musically, I would say they're. Um, I would place them the sort of the at the vanguard of a of a generation of British rock and art rock guitar bands, for who Michael Jackson is just as big an influence as Radiohead. Uh, and I think along, I think the other band I would place at the forefront of it are their contemporaries, Everything Everything, who are quite an overlooked band. Uh, they, they take their uh, Everything Everything take their uh, their name from the opening lyrics of Everything in Its Right Place by Radiohead. Uh, they're a band that um, my friend Kyle introduced me to. I know he'll be uh, very proud of that if he hears this shout out. So I just thought I'd mention <laughs> it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, 19, the 1975, I mean, there's so many, you hear shimmers of so many different styles of music listening to them, so many different influences, whether it's, um, as I said, pop music, rock music, electronic music. They've, they've mentioned Boards of Canada as an influence. Sierra Ross, you know, there's some post-rocky sort of stuff in there, but in bite-sized form again. And yeah, I mean, the, their albums are, their styles are remarkably diverse, I would say. I think on the, on the last album from last year, um, A Brief Inquiry into Online Relationships, uh, they've really created a quite masterful album there. Um, it's, it's, there's, I don't know, there's a certain... there is. A, there's, I think ba- for, to be my favourite band, there is it involves a lot of aesthetics and a certain sound, I think. And there's no doubt that Radiohead and Tool were bands that had, had that. And for me, 1975, although they're a much more, I think, accessible and mainstream act... Than those two have that as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's a certain clarity to their sound that I get from listening to them. It's quite hard to put a finger on, I think. And they've yeah. also released. A, they've just recently released a second song from the uh, upcoming album, People, which is um, a real slap in the face. I mean, it's a, it's a basically a hard rock track, unlike anything else that they've ever done. Um, the video for it is. Um, Worth a watch as well. Seems to hark back to the uh, their previous video for um, the sound from their 2016 album. Uh, I love it when you sleep, for you are so beautiful yet so unaware of it. I think I've got that right there, off uh, off the top of my head. <laughs> Something um, like that. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, this is a band that's just I mean just going places in a major major way, and that I've absolutely fallen in love with in the uh, in the last year or so. And I think again, like everything, everything, I think they 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 very subtly incorporate less subtly now on this new track, but they subtly incorporate influence from other guitar genres uh, like math rock, you know, hardcore. Mm. You know, it doesn't sound like that, but you can see you can you can sort of hear and sense the sort of influence in there as well. And uh, yeah, I think they're they're a band for they're a band for the digital age. You know, that's what they encompass. That's what they look like when you see them performing on stage, um, and everything about them is massively contemporary. And I, I think that's part of the reason why um, I've sort of put them in that position and why I wanted to talk about them. I knew you were going to talk about this. Actually, I don't think you even mentioned it, but um, yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of 1975 as well. The one these bands who, when I first listened to them, I didn't get at all. Mm-hmm. Um, were you instantly taken by them, or did you find that? Yeah, I've never had a problem getting them because I think, as I say, it was that track. I think the genius of uh, of the track uh, "Love It If We Made It" is it's just a, it's just a series of statements about cultural and political events. And even though the band clearly has a liberal worldview, there's plenty, there's no there's no shortage of touchstones that make that abundantly clear. It 
the track isn't actually saying that. It is just, you know, it's it's objective in a way. It's just a list of things. And if you mm-hmm. go to it and you say, um, I, f- I feel like if you go to it and say, well, that's, you know, that's a liberal track, you know, they're snowflakes or whatever, that's calling you out. Like you're judging your own right wing view of the world, I think. And I think that's part of the, the genius of that particular track. And that whole album, uh, A Brief Inquiry, is, um, I mean, it's not all as political as that, but it's more it's more about culture, alienation, loneliness, you know, isolation mm-hmm. in a digital era. And uh, there's a spoken word track on there, um, which is, um, it, I mean, clearly influenced by Fitter Happier from OK Computer by Radiohead. But to me, it's just one of the most devastating uh, things I've listened to recently. Every time I uh, listen to it, it punches me, you know, right in the chest. And um, I won't go into that anymore, but it's just very relevant for me. And, um, you know, there's, there's just, there's a certain perfection for me to everything that they reference, the things that Haley writes songs about. I don't know, he just seems to be saying a lot of really essential um, and powerful things on the tracks, so... That's part of part of, part of why I love mm-hmm. them so much. Excellent, Clive. Your thoughts on them as a band? Um, yeah, I, I really. I've only really listened to a brief inquiry into online relationships. I need to listen to the rest. But I, yeah, I love that album, and it is one that um, when I was travelling, one of the ones that I listened to the most. Right, I didn't know that actually. Yeah, yeah, it, it, I was listening to it loads, and it's because it is. It's very um, emotive. Uh, like you say, it does hurt, kick you in the chest at times, and I just a lot of the stuff it was about was stuff that I was, I guess. Um, dealing with at the time so it was really interesting um i love um some of the tracks that aren't talked about very much i really really like uh, the song be my mistake mm-hmm. uh, in the middle yeah. um and i think i love how it just goes acoustic and everything else fucks off uh, i think that's so yeah. effective and then everything comes back in later on um and it's such a clean well-produced song but with just him and like you can the, like the, del- the vocals are so delicately recorded and sung um, it's, I don't know, I think it's a really special song I really like that song, I don't feel like it's talked about enough and another one is um, the closing track always, I Always Want to Die some, sometimes in brackets um, which I don't know if I've mentioned this story before I don't think I have, it's one I've mentioned to friends but I don't think I've mentioned it on the podcast um, was the, I can't remember, the, one of the band members uh, Matt Healy was going through a bad time a dark time, they hadn't like heard from him, so one of the bad uh, band members like went to his house uh, to check he's okay, um, and he Matt Healy played him this new song. Um, I always want to die bracket sometimes, um, on, just on the acoustic guitar, and it's the first uh, time the other person had ever heard it. And he said that like, as soon as he heard that, he knew it was going to be okay, um, which I find kind of interesting because it's it, it, in it, at its core it is a really fucking d- sad song. Uh, just you know, I mean the sentiment of it is outlined there in the title, um, but it was. I had a similar feeling towards it. Like it's really fucking sad, but also kind of liberating to, to, to kind of nor in a way normalize the, the, yeah. <laughs> the idea of wanting to die, uh, which I feel is not, you know, something that is way too taboo to be talked about, but it's certainly something that I was in a phase, not very far before that, something that I was, you know, ha- thoughts I were dealing with it on a regular basis um, and there's a difference between uh, wanting to die and actually thinking that you're actually going to do something about it but um, yeah it's just it, it was a song that really really hit me and um, it's one that I still listen to today and uh, like a lot it's one of those now and again I get a song where I just fucking put it on repeat for ages and it was one of those <laughs> yeah and there's, there's loads of those on this album uh, and I think it is a really really good album and at first I knocked it a little bit for being a bit of a copy of OK Computer um at times like you've mentioned but i think 
actually in time, I think that's fine. Uh, and it's it, it's clearly very inspired by it, but it's putting that into today's uh, society. Um, OK Computer is very much uh, about the time then when, you know, um, yeah. a bit more about the sort of, well, the technologizing of everything, I suppose. And uh, I guess this is similar, but we've moved on a bit. And um, this fits very well as, as a kind of OK Computer type album. It's obviously not as seminal and things like that as, as OK Computer, but as that type of album in uh, 2018 when it was released. Um, and I think yeah. that's cool. And it's just, it is very accessible, like you say, because I think it is, everything's really cleanly recorded. It doesn't have much like grit to it as such. No. Um, but he's the, just a really, things like Be My Mistake, where it's just him and acoustic guitar outline what a good songwriter he is. Um, and that's just kind of comes through on all the songs. And they're willing to experiment and have loads of, like you say, all these other influences going on, which are the, subtly there just to make it a bit different. Like you don't get, it's weird. Like this is the type of music where in some ways, if you just listen to the melodies and stuff, that I might get bored of normally. Um, but they've Healy's put in so much other stuff that it's it continues to be exciting and I I've, I never listen to it and think this is boring <laughs> it's a bit yeah. Bonivere in the way that he's layered so much stuff in yeah yeah I don't know so yeah I really really like it yeah I, I suppose, need to check out the others for definite yeah I would do yeah um, I mean I'm so excited for the new one next year but I suppose you could compare to Bonivere with the use of auto tune as well um, mm. I know Alex doesn't like it do you but um for me, it's well, become like it's become such an integral artistic tool to music these days. I think. I think yes and no. It's not fair to say I don't like it, but I think it is greatly overused, and it does it does make some music seem a bit samey at times, in mm-hmm. my opinion. But um, no, it's not that I hate it, but it's yeah, occasionally overused. I would say. Um, yeah. yeah, I think if it's used as a tool rather than as a as a auto tune would sound cool in this section rather than yeah, I think that's, I can't fucking sing, so I'm just going to use it for the entire song. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. but um, yeah, the uh, I think the critics the critics consensus on this album I just wanted to mention because Clive referred to it was OK Computer for millennials, wasn't it? Uh, which I think is OK. Not putting yeah, intended. absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think yeah. the. Th- I think the thing with the 1975 is they are, um, as well as being serious artists, they're anthemic and quite often yeah. very poppy. So mm. they, they've got this whole audience that just watches them as pop music and then an, an entirely different audience like yourself, Michael, who is taking a lot more from it, um, yeah. which suggests they're going to have some longevity. Um, sure, yeah. The sky's the limit, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay, well, the last thing I'm we're going to talk about today is my last one. I'm just going to go over this one fairly briefly because I'm conscious of how long we've gone on for. Hopefully, you don't see that as a negative. I'm going to just talk about a TV show I've been watching recently. It's not new, uh, although it's not old either. Um, it's I've watched two seasons, uh, the first of which was in 2017, uh, the second of which earlier this year. Um, based on the novel of the same name by Leanne Marati, Big Little Lies... Now, this is a TV series which stars Reese Witherspoon, Nick, Nicole Kidman, Shalene Woodley, Laura Dern, Zoe Kravitz, Alexander Skarsgård, and Adam Scott, among others, and uh, Meryl Streep in its second season. Um, it centres around a extremely rich um, Californian town. Um, the first season in particular is told in kind of fl- flashbacks and cuts. Somebody's been killed at a posh banquet, Um and it's the story of these mothers and how they've got to that situation. Now, on paper, this sounds like the kind of melodrama I wouldn't have been necessarily a fan of. Um, but 
it's genuinely superb, actually, particularly the, the first season. Um, it manages to be both on paper, almost a stereotypically, um, and obviously I don't say this is my opinion, a stereotypically women's show. But um, I, I think you could convince the most blokey of blokey kind of like, oh, I'm a bloke kind of like people that this is excellent TV. It's absolutely gripping. It's mystery. Um, it, it mixes in some quite high concept themes, really. Uh, between the psychological self and self-harm. And the performances are excellent to a T. But this is another example of a TV show where, once it's gone beyond its source material, the original novel struggles a little bit. So the first season is based on the novel. The second one, they've made themselves. And there is a noticeable drop-off in quality. Um, I wouldn't say it was bad, but there is definitely a drop there. Um, so this kind of joins the club of Game of Thrones and, to an extent, The Handmaid's Tale, which is interesting, really, because I, I, you, you wonder how many of these shows are going to exist where they, they, they want to adapt a book and then they want to take it further. Is this good artistically? Um, but anyway, I, I would heartily recommend this. Um, whether I've sold it to you, I don't know, because it's quite a hard sell. But genuinely, if you watch this, you will be gripped. And I think the idea of playing with time the way it does is used particularly well. And, and the film, uh, sorry, the, the, the series also is very aware of the fact that you're looking in on the lives of, well, for the most part, the extremely wealthy. Um, but it, it, it doesn't normalise their behaviour, though. It kind of satirises it to an extent. Um, and I really enjoyed it anyway. But um, I just thought I'd mention it as a recommendation because I think to a lot of people this would look like it was a non-starter. Um, I wouldn't have watched it uh, bar for my girlfriend, but um, yeah, I loved it. Had, had either of you even heard of this one? Yeah. Uh, no. I, uh, well, actually, I have, yeah. I think El, I have not watched it. El, El's watching this, so yeah. It does sound intriguing, actually, yeah. so. But it's something I've been intrigued about anyway, but I'm just kind of doing one show at a time and taking my time. But yeah, it's definitely on the list. It sounds int- interesting, and like you say, it does sound different to what you initially assume. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think it looks like a stereotypical kind of like a melodrama as such, albeit with a you know a huge Hollywood A star cast. Um, but it, it, it it's so much more. Or maybe you won't get the same effect because I was so surprised at how good it was. But um, yeah, it's it's. I would say though, I'd happily not have watched the second season. Not that it was bad. I still mm. enjoyed it, but um, there is a noticeable drop off. Like I said, it it's it's keeping with the trend where novels that are adapted from books, when they go beyond the source material, just can't keep up. I mean, I I know you you felt the same about The Handmaid's Tale, Clive, and I know you felt the same about Game of Thrones, Michael, but Mm -hmm. can can anyone think of an example of where something has gone beyond the source material, either on TV or film, where it's improved it or maintained the quality? Well, I think I think you mentioned Handmaid's Tale, but I think season two probably. Could yeah, argue. that's that, that's a fair argument. Yeah, but yeah, now it has. But I think there's still a yeah. So I think it can work. I can't think of any other example off the top of my head where I've watched a show where that's happened, except for obviously Game of Thrones, where it definitely did dip. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would make the argument that it's not so much a continuation, but I would make the argument that um, the Lord of the Rings films were better than the original source material, but. Generally speaking, it kind of points to the fact that when one person has complete creative control, if they are good at what they do, it's, it's almost impossible to replicate, even with a team of writers. 
Um, mm-hmm. I think so because the the best analysis I read of Game of Thrones, I can't remember who it was now, but it was that article which pointed out that George R. R. Martin's writing is heavily rooted in in the institutional, whereas as it spun off from his own material, it became a much more focused on character, and it seemed to tip the show completely over the edge as it approached its ending, and I think mm-hmm. that's. That's probably not something that Martin is particularly thinking about or conscious of, but because it's seeped so heavily into yeah, his work, style. you can't just yeah. put a team of writers there and expect to replicate it. You know, so I think that's spot on, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- this show, Big Little Lies, the first season, um, it was it was always intended to be a mini series, so just based on the book, and it's superb. Um, the second season doesn't play with time the way that the first one did. So it's not it's completely linear. It doesn't, you know, have cuts back and forth. And I think the fact that there is there is less of a mystery element in the second season uh really hurts it as well. So my mm-hmm. recommendation would be if you if you fancy you want a drama that isn't necessarily um you know, the kind of Game of Thrones all action style, this one's heartily recommended, but maybe just stick with the first season. I mean you'll miss Meryl Streep who's in the in the second, but you know, um uh, first is much better. People at work have told me it's really good, so that was why I've heard of it. Mm. Heartily recommended. Right, we are awesome. we are pushing on for the hour and a half mark. Something yeah, that I need we promised we'd avoid. Uh, and Clive <laughs> needs to get what? What are you busy with, Clive? Uh, we're going for a walk in the Peak District. Well, he's going to the peaks. Um, yeah, soaking up the fresh air. Right. Okay. Well, pressure's on then, Clive, to give us plug time. Oh God. Right, really fast, super fast plug time. That's Stick Around Cast on Twitter, uh, stickaroundpodcast.com on the internet. You can fill out a form there and send us an email. Or you can send us an email on stickaroundpodcast at gmail.com. You can go to iTunes and find Stick Around. Give us a five-star review. That will bump up our listenership nicely and will be much appreciated. You can find us on facebook.com slash stickaround. You can find us on uh, Instagram at stickaroundcast or at stickaround. I can't remember which one. But I'm sure it'll come up when you start typing it in because, you know, robots are clever nowadays. Um, I think that probably covers everything related to... It won't cover everything because we've got shit tons of stuff. But most things related to stick around. Um, yeah. Clive, enjoy your walk. Michael, what are you doing this <laughs> afternoon? Uh, various bits of housework. Michael, Ooh. enjoy your housework. Thank you. Followed by NFL, of course. <laughs> That's my reward at the end. I'm off to get a pub lunch. Can't wait. Enjoy uh, that, Al. Enjoy. I will. Thank you. <laughs> God. God. Why are we all talking like Brian Blessed? I don't know. I can't stop. <laughs> Come back next time and remember. I, I can stop. Stick them. around. Stick around. Stick around. Thank you all for listening Rest assured that you have found The best podcast in the universe It's Stick Around Booyakasha